sermon outline says rejoicing in heaven. We're in Revelation 19. We're in the home stretch. And uh, if you remember, the first three chapters of Revelation, we took a long time uh, on. And then we were from chapters 4 through 18. We kind of raced through those chapters. No, it doesn't seem like we raced, but we did. And uh, now we've gotten to the last uh, uh, few chapters, and uh, we're going to slow down again as we wrap up Revelation. We're in chapter 19, the first 10 verses. These are wonderful verses. We have uh, gotten past uh, uh, a lot of the very difficult, hard-to-understand passages, and uh, so these um, are a delight to come to. If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his face to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. And as we look at this vision of worship and a vision of a wedding, overwhelm us again as you overwhelm John and instill in us the desire to be a part of this great celebration. Remind us of what this is all about, Lord. Help us to see that we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And he is the one inviting us, preparing us, and fitting us for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Make us long for that day. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, first things first. Not to be self-serving, but I've entitled this 
introduction, a wedding is coming. <laughs> For those who will listen to podcast, I had a daughter get married last month and another daughter getting married next month. Weddings are great. They bring a lot of joy and, and not a small amount of tears. And for all involved, this is a special time. And just think, just imagine for a moment uh, of how a wedding begins. You know, the organist strikes up the measured refrain, uh, possibly of Pachelbel's canon in D, or perhaps even the opening notes of Gabriel's oboe. A hush falls and the congregation turns, and in walks the bride, brilliant in her long white dress, Radiant joy adding luster to her beauty as her father escorts her to the bridegroom's side. Those of you who've had the opportunity of seeing that picture of those men who've stood up there at the front and seen your bride come around the corner know that there is no more beautiful sight. The scriptures, and in particular the Gospels and the book of Revelation, lean heavily on the theme of marriage, with Christ as the bridegroom and his church as the bride. And so let's consider the first century Hebrew marriage, which actually concerns our spiritual life today. Because without an understanding of the Middle Eastern life and culture, we miss much of the wealth and power of the biblical parables and metaphors uh, dealing with marriage. And we're not going to let this go. Rick Behrens is going to come back in July and develop this theme even further. But in the ancient Near East, the son's father had the ultimate authority to determine who would be the son's wife. He could consult his son and he could consult his own wife, but ultimately it was his call. And once that decision was made, the son then approached the father of the selected woman, usually without her knowing it, to ask permission. And if the woman's father agreed, then negotiations would go on for the bride price, commonly known as a dowry, a practice that could use some further consideration today. <laughs> the man needed to pay the father to compensate him for the loss of his daughter's labor and as insurance in case she was widowed. The father, of course, would demand top dollar. It would often take the man a while to meet the price. Imagine the self-esteem boost that the daughter would get when she found out that she was worth 10 goats and two oxen. I had an Old Testament professor that made a grave mistake on an archaeological dig. They saw a wedding go on nearby, and they were invited to come over and join in. And he went over, and uh, he was talking to the father. And uh, uh, he had his, uh, his wife with him on this archaeological dig. They were in Jordan, and the father was mentioning all this, uh, the many goats and cows and things that he received as the dowry, and he said, well, what do you think that we would get for my wife? His wife was very petite, very thin, really not built for uh, the hard work of the Middle East. And he just looked over. He said, worst question he ever asked in his whole life. And, and this man just looked over and said, a couple of goats. And like, it was like, so it still goes on today, the, uh, the whole thing. And sometimes instead of uh, money or uh, farm animals, it could be work 
or perhaps even a military conquest could be the price. Remember back in Genesis 29, Jacob worked uh, for Laban 14 years in order to marry Rachel. And so this is very common in that culture. And when the price was met, the daughter was notified and uh, she prepared a room with a betrothal meal if she wanted to marry. And the man would come and knock on her door and wait. And if she was ready, the woman would open the door just a crack, which meant yes. And the man was welcome to open the door and walk in and sit down with the woman and they would share a meal from a common plate and a common cup. It would be like uh, today if we had one plate with two forks. And that was the idea. And they would feed each other and drink wine from the same cup. And this marked the covenant of unity and mutual devotion. And now that they were betrothed, they were bound in a covenant, one as strong as marriage that could only be broken with a writ of divorce, even though no sexual relations were permitted until the wedding. And that's why, if you remember, Joseph considered quietly divorcing the pregnant but virgin Mary, even though they were not yet married. And then the man, after the meal, would leave his betrothed for up to a year as he would go off and build a new home with all the necessary furnishings. And the woman would know when he was returning only as a period of time, like uh, he's going to come back sometime during the spring. And she didn't know what specific day it would be. And the anticipation for that day would be high, and she had to be ready. And the time that the bridegroom would come would be midnight. And he would come in a large procession uh, with uh, excited uh, people running ahead to alert the bride and that she was his and they would all be prepared for the wedding feast including proper clothing for the guests the banquet typically lasted seven days and you remember often Jesus would announce that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast now our contemporary weddings have remnants of this traditional uh, Hebrew weddings. For example, the father still gives the bride away. The bride wears white, as we see here in Revelation 19. And the groom goes to her, which is why the wedding is at the bride's home. And he takes her, not back to his parents' home, but to his new home, prepared just for her, symbolizing the leaving and cleaving of Genesis 1. In fact, the only one in the Bible who is going to bring his bride to his father's house is Jesus himself. But far too often today, vital elements are out of place. And so, as the church, we have to guard against taking biblical traditions and making them meaningless or even silly instead of sacred. Most of the wedding traditions of our day find their roots in this ancient Hebrew ceremony which was steeped in the scriptures. And here in Revelation 19, we see God chose the bride for his son. And God loves us with infinite depth. He romances us with exquisite mountains and oceans and flowers and fragrances and grace and glory. And God announced his bride price to be his all because we are priceless in his eyes. And so in Christ, Philippians 2, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
That was the bride price that Christ paid for his bride. And Christ now has the permission of the Father to pursue us as his bride. The betrothal covenant sealed with his own blood, cleansing us of our sin at his last Passover, uh, the Lord's Supper with his apostles. They ate from the same bread and drank from the same cup. And we continue in their steps. And we're reading about a betrothal ceremony when we read in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Christ knocks on our door. And when we open it, even if it's just a crack, we're saying, yes, come in. I want to be yours forever. He tells us he's making a home for us. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's wedding language. And here in his revelation through the Apostle John, he tells us of that future day. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. We have to make ourselves ready. We must wear the fine linen which will be provided by Christ in a wedding parable. <coughs> Jesus tells how someone was taken from the banquet for not wearing the available wedding garments. In Matthew 22, he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. <coughs> then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We come to that day in our wedding garments. which means we have to discard the <coughs> clothing of our own making. Excuse me, I've been fighting a cough all week, so I'll be taking cough drops and spray and all that to get through the morning. <coughs> what John wants us to understand is that in Jesus' parable, those people who refuse to come to the wedding are those who would rather serve the beast and worship his image. And those who refuse to wear the wedding garments are those who are failing to flee from the harlot's arms when they've been warmed. They're too deeply involved in her idolatry. In another wedding parable, Jesus says in Matthew 25, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's there in your bulletin. It's the parable of the ten virgins, five foolish, five wise. And the five foolish ones had no oil. But the wise ones took oil with them for their lamps. And then in verse 6 it says, But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, There will not be enough for us and you. Go to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. God created the nation of Israel to present the bridegroom to all the nations of the world for a great old-fashioned Hebrew wedding. 
And now we, the bride, people of all nations, who open the door of our hearts upon hearing his knock, are betrothed to our beloved Redeemer, and we have to prepare ourselves for the great wedding feast. So let's turn to this chapter and see what's happening as we prepare for the wedding feast of the Lamb. There are a number of key words in this text, and we're going to focus on them this morning to guide our study. And we'll start by listening to the first hallelujah, verses 1 and 2. The first hallelujah, what belongs to God. What belongs to God. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. One of the things you need to see in this passage is there's a contrast going on between Babylon, the harlot who wore purple and scarlet, and the bride of Christ who wears fine linen, bright and pure. And so everything that is said about each of them is said in contrast to the other. And you have to keep that in mind as you read this. Now, in every place that I've ever visited or had opportunity to worship, even places uh, where they spoke other languages, uh, there's been at least two words that are held in common in all those languages and that I'm able to understand in sermons and hymns and prayers. Uh, the first one is amen, and the second one is hallelujah. And I can speak those two words in other languages because uh, we've all borrowed them from the scripture. Hallelujah comes from the Hebrew word Hallelu, which means to praise, and Yah, which is an abbreviated form of Yahweh, the name of God. In the Psalms, it's used 24 times, translated most commonly into English as praise the Lord. Although it's used extensively in the Psalms, Hallelujah is used only four times in the New Testament. All here in Revelation 19. Obviously, there's many other words for praise, used uh, in the scriptures, but this word, hallelujah, most often expresses our praise to God. And we find it here all four times in the New Testament right here in the first six verses of chapter 19. Now remember John has described the fall of Babylon the Great, the great harlot and the mother of harlots, he says in chapters 17 and 18. He announced Babylon's fall all the way back in chapter 14, says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. He picks this up again in chapter 17 by explaining Babylon the great as the seductive harlot that's deceived high and low, the kings, all those who dwell on the earth with her idolatrous ways. And she encapsulates the spirit of godlessness and idolatry in every age that permeates the cultures of the world with thoughts and actions that are antithetical to the true knowledge of God. And though she seems to be so evident and obvious throughout every culture and every people group, the Lamb of God will overcome her and all that follow her idolatrous ways. Yet this doesn't happen until the end when God begins his final judgment of the world. And the Apostle John gives us glimpses of Babylon's overthrow on earth and the response in heaven. And the heavenly response is highlighted here by this fourfold hallelujah. John uses the phrase, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. 
He uses the comparison, some versions that seemed like. He uses the comparison because it's something he can't fully describe. The great multitude includes the redeemed throughout the ages. The same multitude described earlier in Revelation 7 as being so large, no one could count them, meaning the number of the elect is not small. And they come from every nation, tribe, uh, people, and language means that God has his elect among all the nations. They all have come out of the great tribulation, the entire period of time between the first and second comings of Christ, and they either died trusting in Christ or were put to death as martyrs for their confession that Jesus is Lord, and they refused to honor, uh, honor and worship the beast. And so all of heaven gathers to praise hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And John directs us to worship because of all that belongs to God. The look here at what belongs to God helps us to understand the kind of truths that should induce worship from God's people. And the first one is salvation. Salvation turns our attention to the whole redemptive work of God through his son, who is the Lamb of God. That salvation is necessary brings us back to the condition of every person. We're sinful. We're separated from God. We're depraved in every aspect of our being. We're without hope and without God in this world, darkened in our understanding of ourselves and of God, all of which you can find in Ephesians 2 and 4. And yet out of our desperate plight, God had purposed before the foundation of the world to bring deliverance, the literal meaning of salvation. And that's one reason that John reminded us back in Revelation 17 that the names of the redeemed were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Salvation is not uh, God's reaction to man's condition, but it's his intentional plan, his eternal covenant made before the foundation of the world. He planned and initiated salvation for his elect. He secured it through the offering of his son, as John the Baptist said back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So salvation belongs to God. It's not part of a human imagination. It doesn't come about at human uh, instigation. It is the display of God's great mercy and grace through Christ. And as we contemplate that salvation belongs to God, let us worship him for every aspect of that salvation, that he would even consider such sinners like us, that he would purpose to save people, even rebels, for himself, that he would secure our salvation at such a great price of his son bearing his own wrath on our behalf, and that he would bring us into his presence forever. Salvation belongs to our God. The second thing we see that belongs to God is glory. Glory refers to the brilliant, radiant beauty of God's character. The Hebrew term literally means heavy or weighty. So in this respect, glory refers to the heaviness or the weightiness of God as God. And that's why C.S. Lewis could write about God in his book, The Weight of Glory. Small book I commend it to you. And here we ponder the three persons, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We think of the wonder of their distinctions in person and function, and yet the absolute reality of the divine oneness, not as three gods, but as one God. And we consider the character 
of our God. He is holy and just. He is faithful and true. He is merciful and kind, and he is jealous and wrathful. No contradictions exist in him, and all that he is, he is with infinite perfection. The third thing that belongs to God is power. And power, in this case, refers to the active power of God. It's not some kind of stored-up energy, but the exercise of his divine authority to carry out his righteous reign as the Almighty. And his salvation and glory and power are displayed, for his judgments are true and just, for he judged the great prostitute and has avenged on her the blood of his servants." And John shows us that God's power doesn't exist in a vacuum, but is wisely used to fulfill his word. God's law stands by his judgments against the great harlot and her followers, and in the salvation that required this legal declaration of righteousness, what we call justification for all those whom Christ would redeem. God's power accomplished that. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. And we think on those things, and they should lead us to worship him. That's the first hallelujah, what belongs to God. The second hallelujah deals specifically with the justice of God. The uh, second hallelujah by this uh, great multitude, this heavenly multitude, sees the eternal evidence of divine justice against the great harlot, and they break forth in worship. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now we may squirm and fidget a bit over this because of our modern sensitivities to the word judgment. But I think partly it's because we've been influenced by the uh, deception and seduction of the great harlot. She's corrupted the earth with immoral ways. She's mocked The righteousness of God has codified in his law. She she had slain with her hands many who embraced the gospel. It says she was drunk on the blood of the saints. But our God is not passive in his righteousness. And what I think is the best commentary on Revelation by Dr. Dennis Johnson, which I just found out he's going to do our Presbytery retreat this fall. I'm very excited. Uh, He writes that Babylon's smoke serves as an ongoing testimony to God's zeal for justice on behalf of his persecuted church. For the persecuted church, Revelation is their favorite book. And it should be ours for the church that's fighting deception and seduction. This should be our favorite book too. That it says the smoke ascends forever and ever tells us the magnitude of God's holiness that requires that judgment. The malicious nature of sin against God and the way that God views the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially those who die for the sake of the gospel. And the certainty that no injustices towards God's children will be treated lightly. And as we consider the righteous judgments of our God and the thought of God's uh, holiness and pure and perfect character, that's supposed to bring hallelujah, praise out of us, praise given only to him as the the only one who deserves it. 
So the justice of God is our second hallelujah. The third hallelujah is our response to God, verses 4 and 5. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Two words I know in every language. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him great and small. Again, we see the 24 elders, the four living creatures before the presence of the Lord. They unite as worship leaders before God's throne. As they see the revelation of God in his salvation, glory, and power, as they observe the righteousness of his judgments, these heavenly representatives stand in agreement by offering praise to God. That's what the amen implies. I agree. So be it. And this gives us a clear perspective on worship. Whenever we read the scripture or hear the word expounded or listen to the word taught and engage on discussion on the word of God, our minds uh, agree with what God has revealed of himself and his ways. That brings forth worship and praise and hallelujahs. The reality is a lot of what is termed worship in our day is in contrast with the biblical guidelines. You know, it's not that hard for uh, leaders to create a worship environment. You just need to know the right chords to play that will get that emotional response. You know, you plan something that causes the worshipers to feel happy, choreograph a production that stirs people's hearts. I can't say I've never done any of that stuff. But I'm always struck that when a a uh, particular passage we're dealing on is particularly joyful and happy and you can sense everybody's getting excited and pumped and people will say, oh, the Spirit of God was really moving today. And I'm like, remember last week when everybody felt guilty and convicted and were walking out with their heads down? Spirit of God was moving there too, you know? And so we have to be careful that it's not just the good feelings that we think uh, God does. Um. But none of those things that stir our emotions turn what we do into worship. Because unless God has revealed himself through scripture, then we're not worshiping. We cannot worship. We don't worship. You don't have worship without the word. In any service, if you ever go to a service, you're on vacation. If the word of God's not there, it doesn't qualify as worship. You can go through the motions of certain parts of what's called a worship service, but we do not worship without the revelation of God, and that comes through his word. It's one reason why we pay close attention to what we sing. If the songs don't accurately reflect the revelation of God and his word, then they're unworthy of being part of the assembling of God's people in worship. Now, we've Probably made a few mistakes over the years, not that many. Um, but we're very conscious of that. The words have to reflect God's word, the words of our songs. There's lots of great songs out there, but if they don't reflect God's word, we don't sing them Sunday morning. We may sing them Sunday afternoon or Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but not Sunday morning. They're not a bad song, just not a worship song if they're not coming out of the word. And that's why we have to, 1 Timothy 4, devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Now, we're not to be emotionless 
when we're involved in those things, but our affections, our emotions should be engaged and absorbed with the revelation of God so that we worship God as God desires. Of course, that's what Jesus told us back in John 4. Do you remember we met the woman at the well? He said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we need to join with our heavenly counterparts in the amen of agreeing with God's truth concerning himself, concerning his son, concerning the whole work of redemption, and echo the hallelujah with them. Which brings us to the fourth hallelujah of the New Testament here, which is the reign of God, verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Now, John is listening to this. Remember, everything he's writing about, he heard. And now he hears praise and worship, and he describes it by comparing it to three things. The, The voice of a great multitude, It's audible, it's intelligible, it's personal. He says it's the sound of many waters. It's sustained, it's majestic, it's energizing. And the sound of mighty peals of thunder, so it grows louder and louder that you can feel the reverberations of praise. It's all-consuming, nothing else can be heard. Nothing else can be thought of but that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then John hears the original hallelujah chorus. We sing this at Christmas. Our version says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And the way most people know it, whether they think about it or not, is Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The Hallelujah chorus draws right from the scripture. Most of it is scripture set to music. How many people will sing that next Christmas without knowing what it's about? Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. We worship because of the sovereign reign of our Lord. Think about that. He's not just another one of many gods out in the world. He is the Lord our God. We belong to him. We are his worshipers. We will dwell with him forever. We received his abundant grace. We've known his love to us through Christ's death on the cross. We've known his power towards us through the resurrection of Christ on our behalf. He's not a God of our making or some tribal deity that we're trying to make big in the world. He is the Almighty, a title that's used seven times in Revelation. It's not a coincidence, seven, the number of perfection and completeness. And when we read that he is the Almighty, it means quite literally that all might belongs to him. He is omnipotent. There's no power above him or power that can thwart him or power that can unsettle him. Every power that exists under him exists by his authority, pleasure, and purpose. Remember when Pontius Pilate quizzed Jesus in John 19, Pilate said to him, you you won't speak to me? Do you not know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. The apostle Paul later wrote Romans 13, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's what being the Almighty is all about. As the Almighty, our God reigns. 
And it may be due to the wickedness of humanity, the spread of sin in our world. We have difficulty seeing his reign. I'm sure that's what John's first audience was experiencing. I mean, they lived under the iron hand of Rome. They felt stifled at the least, oppressed by Rome's demand for allegiance to the emperor as Lord and God, and they were so few and so powerless. Rome was so massive and so powerful. Did the God of the first century Christians reign? Here's where we get the great message of Revelation. The Apostle John is helping believers then and now, every age, understand things not as they appear to be with our limited vision and understanding, but as they really are. And the verb tense here of reign indicates not the beginning of God's reign, but the full comprehensive complete display of his eternal reign. He was reigning then, he reigns now, and he will continue to reign forever and ever. And all other powers and competitors to the reign of God are judged and conquered. His reign alone is forever. And give thought to the multiplied displays of power, of the power of God. You contemplate his all-powerful reign, his eternal reign, and then worship him. That's what John's trying to tell us. And having looked at the four hallelujahs, we come to the fourth of seven benedictions in the book of Revelation. It's that number seven again. It's an amazing blessing. We get it in verses seven through nine, and this blessing is the invitation of God, the invitation of God. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, here it is, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This final hallelujah introduces us to a very different picture from that which has occupied us from some time now. We've seen persecution and oppression and judgment and death and destruction, and now we get a wedding. And what he's saying is all those trials of persecution have been preparation for the wedding. Christ and his people are to be married for eternity, and the banquet is now upon us. God has been calling out of Babylon a people unto himself, a bride for his son. And he is about to bring to pass a new creation, a church unsullied by our contact with Babylon. In contrast to Babylon dressed in scarlet, here we see a pure bride fit for God's perfect son wearing garments of white linen. It's not without significance that John in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus tells us the first thing that Jesus did when he began his public ministry was attend a wedding in Cana of Galilee, a wedding he blessed with his first miracle. The ministry of Jesus has always been a preparation for a wedding. And we see that even going back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 61 and 62. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
it is a blessed thing to receive an invitation to this marriage supper. We're going to go over a little bit today, so you'll just be patient with me. In many ways, the Lord's Supper, like we celebrated last Sunday, is an anticipatory meal of this coming wedding union. You could say that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's the rehearsal dinner. We eat and drink until he comes, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. We anticipate what is before us as much as we look back in remembrance of what he has already done and what happens at a meal. Presbyterians do nothing without eating. It's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt have food at all church events. Amen? You know, we eat, but when we eat, we fellowship, we talk, we share stories, we laugh, we enjoy one another's company. There's nothing else in our lives that we do every day that comes close to reflecting both the social and spiritual interaction that people share with a common meal. And what John's telling us is heaven is like that. Think of back in the first century, those... (coughs) Despondent brethren living under constant pressure and duress. And this heavenly voice is turning their attention away from Roman oppression to consider their part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord God himself has invited them to great invitation. You should have great joy for having uh, received it. And this invitation is irrevocable. By his spirit, through the gospel, he has called us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You've been singled out by God. So overwhelming is this reality. The messenger adds, these are the true words of God. Think about God's great mercy being shown to you. Consider again the grace that he's given you. Worship with great joy. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all that is good and great news. But there's a warning tacked on at the very end. The great danger of the idolatry of man, verse 10. John says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This is an angel who's been talking. And he falls down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's his way of saying, all this prophecy I'm giving to you is coming straight from Jesus. And John's response here to this vision of worship in heaven and a wedding, and he just wants to join in with him. And he falls down at the foot of the angel only to get rebuked. The angel says, don't do that. Worship God. God alone is to be worshiped. It's never right to worship angels no matter how awesome and wonderful they are. And at the close of the Bible, we're given yet another reminder of how prone we are to commit idolatry and how right Calvin was to suggest that man's mind is a perpetual idol factory. Culturally speaking, even though she lives amidst prostitutes, the church's wedding day is coming. And the glory of uh, uh, earthly marriages are going to fade into distant memory As to the sound of rejoicing, the church will finally be revealed, prepared for her husband. Bright, pure linen will clothe the bride of Christ on that last day. 
And she comes in this beautiful garments, the righteous deeds of the saints, not by her own merit, but by the grace of God. He gives to her, grants to her, it says, the fine linen garments. He creates in her the good works that she does. The church's wedding dress is God's gift. And those who hold to the testimony of Jesus do righteous deeds. This probably means holding fast to Jesus' teaching, even in the face of opposition, bearing witness to him when his response is hostile. Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know her story, you know she was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager. And she wrote about her wedding day and Christ's love for his church. She writes, on my own wedding day, I felt awkward. She's a quadriplegic. My girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off-center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in the bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. That's her husband's name, Ken Tada. There he was, standing tall, and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. Our entrance into heaven may be something like that. Someday Jesus will come for you and gaze into your eyes. And one look from him will change you and purify any remaining stains and smears of sin. And heaven will be an undoing of all the bad things in our lives as God wipes away all the tears and closes the door on pain and disappointment. And how easy it is to think that we're utterly unlovely, especially to someone as lovely as Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love. And he cannot wait for that day when we are united with him forever. Johnny writes, I started feeling homesick for heaven and missing my Savior when I think about how Jesus feels about me. Isaiah 62 says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young woman marries, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. These are the words of Christ, the bridegroom, the lover of my soul, who is brimming over with heartfelt love for his bride, the church. In fact, Jesus gave his very life as his dowry and betrothed it is our responsibility to get fitted for heaven and to wait for his return for we are on our way to embrace our Savior at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us again. We need new perspectives on our life, on our world, all those questions we can't answer this side of heaven. Help us to focus on Jesus. Use these visions to change us into people who trust you, people who can't wait for that day when we're clothed in salvation, when we're wearing the robe of righteousness as we enter into the wedding supper of the Lamb. Make us people who can't wait for that day. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.